When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Good evening, everybody, uh, and welcome to the Critical Care High Yield Review Questions uh, Board Exam Prep. Uh, tonight we have Dr. Raj Dasgupta, who's been with us forever, <laughs> for, for a long, long time, many, many years. I, I can't even count. Um, and so uh, he, it's, he's always great when he's here, um, and uh, he's, his, he's just full of knowledge and information and uh this is definitely going to be a, a good time. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to uh, turn it over to Dr. Raj and uh, take it away. Well, hey, thank you, Jeff. And hello, everyone. And thank you for coming tonight. So anyways, I'm really excited to do this kind of cram session, high yield critical care review. Um, yeah, I took my critical care boards twice already, not trying to age me already. So the last time I took it was only about, you know, oh, my God two years ago. So I feel like I'm in the trenches with you folks. And I got to tell you that um, I know everyone's going to do great, whether you're recertifying or certifying. So what I did was I kind of picked a couple of questions I felt were like those. Wow. I mean, are they really going there? And I really want to take some time to break it down because I know when I take my boards, I love to do things that are both practical for getting a good score and to help patient care. So I really wanted to talk about this question. This is a 52-year-old gentleman. He returned to the United States after a business assignment in Asia. Okay, where does this coming from? Uh, he was there for half a year, and then he goes to the emergency department with uh oh, confusion and, and severe back pain. So this combination, going to the ED, this can't be good. So the patient's medical history is significant for recurrent uric acid, uh-oh, kidney stones. So let's go back to the first line. If you're getting severe back pain, you have recurrent kidney stones, what are they worried about? Uh, pyelonephritis, pyelonephritis, hydronephrosis, oh my God. So, and if you're having confusion, like what shock kind of goes with that? Well, any shock, but definitely sepsis. So already this isn't sounding good for this guy. So, and he's had these recurrent stones over the past five years. Around eight months ago, the patient had lithotripsy, probably because the stone was so big to address the obstruction. And that obstruction definitely was associated with hydro. And at that time he developed uh, urosepsis. So the etiological agent of that episode was Pseudomonas, and it was resistant to, uh-oh, fluoroquinolones. And, you know, let's go back to some basics. So how do fluoroquinolones work? Well, they're protein synthesis inhibitors. Yes, they love to inhibit one of my favorite enzymes out there called DNA gyrase, otherwise known as uh, topoisomerase. And it was also resistant to a third-generation cephalosporin. So what third-generation cephalosporin 
Gabrosinomonas? And the answer is ceftazidine, you know, and it's also resistant to meropenem. So if you got a gram negative that's resistant to meropenem, oh boy, God, now you're really worried about a lot of resistance because three letters jump to mind, CRE, carbipenem resistant enterobaciae. And if you're going to be resistant to cephalosporins, oh boy, four letters jump to mind. No, not those four letters, <laughs> but uh, ESBL, extended spectrum beta-lactamases. He's not doing good. So patient has been on suppressive antibiotic therapy with ciprofloxacine. And on exam, he appears acutely ill, he's febrile, his blood pressure is low, and they gave him fluid resuscitation. They gave him three liters of lactated ringers. And you know what? He didn't respond. Uh, they do a UA, as you should. There's numerous WBCs, white cell casts, and of course, you always, always want to do a gram stain to see, you know, what are we playing with? Gram positive, gram negative, and what a surprise, it's gram negative bacteria. Based on these epidemiological considerations, what do I mean? Patient was in Asia for half a year. He has resistance to cephalosporins and carbipenems um, for resistant pathogens and severity of this patient's clinical presentation, uh, confusion, hypotension, what antibiotic would most likely cover all the clinical pathogens for which he is at risk for? So I'm looking at this and I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, is this gonna be on my critical care board exams? The answer is uh, yes. And I felt a little blown away too. I'm like, is this even English? I mean, what, what do we have here? We have some septolazine, tazobactam. I guess Zosin's familiar. We're on some meropenem, babobactam. We're on some sephdericol. And okay, another one jumps to mind, lenezolid. So, you know, I'm looking at these and I'll tell you one thing that for me, the answer doesn't just jump out at me. Which one can I say I'm probably not going to be worried about as much? It's definitely going to be, I'm not going to pick lenezolid. Why? Because that gram stain is always so important. Can you have gram positive bugs in the urine? The answer is definitely. Can you say enterococcus, enterococcus facium or fecalis? And sure, you definitely will have a positive gram stain, but we have gram negative bugs. So I don't think I'll be needing this gram positive coverage. So which one of these is going to be the right answer? And the answer is, you know, I mean, let's talk about it. That's, you know, the whole point of this question. So to pick the right answer, we really got to go back to the basics. And yes, I did put this slide up there. It does say prokaryotes and eukaryotes. So you got to understand what are we and what are bacteria? So everyone, what, what am I? That's right. I'm a eukaryote, while bacteria are prokaryotes. So what really separates a eukaryote from prokaryotes is going to be those membrane-bound organelles. So prokaryotes don't have any. They don't have a nucleus. They don't have a Golgi apparatus, a mitochondria, any of these things. But we do, and of course, being eukaryotes, what is my <laughs> the, the most important? important thing I have inside my cell is going to be the nucleus. And when we talk about the name eukaryote, you means true and karyote means nucleus, true nucleus. So why am I even bringing this up? Because it really shows why when we take antibiotics, they can kill bacteria and not us. Because prokaryotes are just going to be basically just a bunch of cytoplasm. So when we talk about the dogma of how antibiotics work, well, when we talk about humans or bacteria or viruses, it really comes down to DNA can replicate, DNA can undergo transcription where we make, you know, things like messenger RNA, which is a temporary copy of the DNA. 
and you can undergo translation where you take that messenger RNA and you can make protein. So these are going to be ways that antibiotics are going to be working. So when we talk about that RNA here, I know I just put the word RNA here. Remember, there are three types of RNA, and this is why it's going to be very important. I'm mentioning this. We mentioned messenger RNA, just that temporary copy, but ribosomal RNA, when we talk about bacteria, you can just imagine huge cytoplasm with tons and tons and tons of ribosomes just in that cytoplasm. And of course, you know, when you want to make that protein, these transfer RNAs bring in amino acids to make that protein. So when we talk about these prokaryotes, this is going to be a nice picture over here that you're going to see lots and lots and lots of what? Cytoplasm and all these little dots here, tons and tons of dots are going to be what? Ribosomes. And we're going to break down, you know, the structure of the bacteria when we talk about cell wall and cell membrane in one moment, but I really wanted to show you how many ribosomes are just hanging out in the cytoplasm and there are no membrane bound organelles. All you have in the cytoplasm is what? The DNA right there. So when we talk about these, you know, prokaryotes, bacteria, and I said ribosomes are going to be the ones that are going to be translating that messenger RNA, that in prokaryotes, of course, we have what's called the 70S uh, unit. It's made up of the 50S, the big one, which really brings in the transfer RNA and the small one, which actually is going to take the messenger RNA and make the protein. So with that being said, now that you understand the beginning, why is the gram stain so important on any board exam, including the critical care boards? Because it's really going to tell you, number one, what are we trying to cover? And number two, it really makes you appreciate the word resistance. So when we talk about the critical care boards, what are the hottest topics in critical care now are resistant gram negative bacteria. That's a huge thing right now. So when we talk about in general, I mean, why is there a lot more resistance when we talk about gram negatives versus gram positives is it really comes down to the basics. It really comes down to, I mean, what makes a gram negative negative and positive positive? And it's more than just the gram stain. Of course, I mean, if you're gram positive, you're going to have a little purple color to it. If you're gram negative, you're going to be kind of like that pinkish red, but it really comes down to the cell wall. So when you tell me what is probably one of the most common categories of antibiotics that we use for bacteria, it's got to be beta-lactam drugs. And so when we talk about beta-lactam drugs, I mean, let's list a couple of them, penicillins, cephalosporins, carbipenems, you know, and what are they attacking is the cell wall. So when we talk about gram-positive bacteria, look at their cell wall. It's in yellow here. It's huge. You have a huge target for these antibiotic categories, these beta-lactams. Well, when we talk about gram negatives, the cell wall itself is actually really small, very small target. Now, on top of that, when we talk about bacteria, gram positives or negatives, what's going to be above and below the cell wall is called the cell membrane. So people always ask me, what's the difference between a membrane and a wall? Well, the cell membrane is semi-permeable, but the cell wall is pretty impermeable. So look at this gram negative that's going to be on the right. you got that cell membrane above and below the cell wall. And what is this layer up here? It's called a capsule. So gram positives and gram negatives could have capsules. But look at all the defenses a gram negative has just to begin with. So, you know, I know when we talk about capsules, we always, I know back in USMLE step one days, there were little mnemonics we remember of who has capsules and who don't. I think that uh, 
Klebsiella has a capsule, strep pneumo has a capsule, Neisseria has a capsule. There's all these different ways we kind of remember this. But with this being said, what are we talking about today? Gram negatives. So now we know what really separates gram negatives from gram positives. So when we talk about the two main categories of antibiotics you need to know for the critical care boards, I put them in stuff that attacks the cell wall. So they're gonna be these beta-lactams, we said penicillins, cephalosporins, and carbipenems. But what other antibiotics can also attack the cell wall? Of course, vancomycin and something called azotrianam. We don't use it that common. It's a monobactam we use for people who are somewhat penicillin allergic. And then the other way is gonna be called bacterial protein synthesis inhibitors. And that's where we went back to that initial dogma right here where we said, hey, don't forget this. That's how our antibiotics are going to work. So when we talk about what's going to inhibit bacterial protein synthesis, especially when we focus on gram negatives, think about aminoglycosides, but we don't really use them. Why? It's because number one, toxicities. And who can tell me the two toxicities of aminoglycosides? Things like gentamicin and amikacin and tobramycin. Yeah, of course, renal toxicity and ototoxicity. You know, then of course there's macrolides or tetracyclines. Please God, no one pick chloramphenicol for your boards. <laughs> That's always the wrong answer. And, and of course, our gram-positive coverage, lindeslid, these are gonna inhibit bacterial protein synthesis. So one thing I wanted to mention, which is gonna be great for the board exams, is, well, how do, bacteria get resistance. So if you're gonna be a gram positive, usually when we talk about beta-lactam drugs, they, we, uh, gram positives get resistance because of mutating the penicillin binding proteins. So all beta-lactams, whether they're cephalosporins or carbipenems, they bind to these penicillin binding proteins. And from there, they can damage the cell wall. Um, gram negatives, however, they usually get resistance by making what they call beta-lactamases. So by making these beta-lactamases, they break down the beta-lactams. So gram negatives, like the question we're talking about now, are probably going to have resistance because of they have these beta-lactamases. So when we talk about beta-lactamase inhibitors, so all those drugs you, you saw over there had, most of them had a core drug attached to a beta-lactamase inhibitor. So the classic ones are things like tazobactam, clavonic acid, sublactam, and these are kind of like what we refer to as suicide substrates, meaning that they're attached to an antibiotic, and what happens is the bacteria destroys the tazobactam, the clavonic acid, the sublactam, and the core drug does the killing. So it's like a suicide substrate. But there are newer generations of these beta-lactamase inhibitors, Avibactam, Relbactam, Vabobactam, and they don't even contain a beta-lactam ring. So we kind of call them these non-beta-lactam beta-lactamase inhibitors. And when they are, when they do their killing, it's irreversible. And because it's irreversible, they got FDA approval for really resistant gram-negative bugs such as ESBL and CRE, just to mention that. So why am I even talking about this? I'm sure someone listening today is like, oh my God, what is this slide? But it's getting confusing. So rounds in the ICU, what's a Fetrosia? What's a Vabamir? What's a Zerbaxa? What's a Bacarbia? Like what happened to the olden days? Where's my Cephapeme and Augmentin? <laughs> so there are so many combinations out there. And what are these new drugs for? Resistant gram-negative bugs. So that's why I put this question here. So on top of this, being confusing. Um, 
there's a lot of overlap and what is the niche? So even when we talk about the drugs in this question, things like Vebamir or Zervaxa, that sure, they definitely have their niche and we're gonna talk about that, but there's a lot of overlap. So, you know, Avacaz can have a little pseudomonal coverage, but same to Cervaxa. Can Cervaxa cover some ESBL? It does, but it's not really an ESBL drug. So because of all these things, it's very confusing. And now there's questions like this, like this on the boards. So to really appreciate these drugs and how do we get here, we really have to go back and just kind of go to the basics and see how we kind of progressed. So when we talk about beta-lactams, I mean, it really comes down to the penicillin story. So when we talk about penicillin, um, number one, uh, the year is the 1940s. And in the 1940s, there was a very famous world war. I mean, who could tell me what world war was in the 1940s? It was World War II. And during that war, there was really bad infections, a lot of bad skin infections. And when you have a lot of skin infections, of course, you were about gram positive bugs. So, of course, penicillin that was discovered by Alexander Fleming, um, you know, was one of the main drugs that we were using at the time. And we had our penicillin. Of course, the minute we started using it, we get what? Resistance. And how did they gain resistance? They're modifying that penicillin binding protein. So we came up with semi-synthetic penicillins, things like oxacillin or nafacillin. And of course, what happened was there's something called a MEK-A gene that was one of the mutations and it gave us MRSA, uh-oh. But all this was for gram-positive coverage, but we wanted to have some gram-negative coverage. So we came up with the amino penicillins, things like ampicillin, things like amoxicillin, but those are only gram-negative easy bugs. So what is a gram-negative easy bug? Will be something like E. coli, you know, but we wanted to go to those gram-negative difficult bugs, you know, and what's that difficult gram-negative we worry about? Pseudomonas. So what did we come up with? Extended spectrum penicillins, and the classic one out there is pepercillin. But what do we know, everyone, when we talk about gram-negatives? How do they get the resistance? Yeah, through these beta-lactamases. So we wanted to come up with beta-lactamase inhibitors so our gram-negative, you know, core drugs could be, have more oomph to them when they want to combat things like pseudomonas. So we came up with all these first-generation beta-lactamase inhibitors, flavonic acid, sublactam, and of course, tazobactam. And we took the pepercillin, combined it with tazobactam, and we got zosin. And we definitely know zosin, broad-spectrum antibiotic, that definitely covers what? Pseudomonas. But of course, we weren't happy just having penicillins out there. You know, we came up with cephalosporins, which is another beta-lactam drug. So when we talk about cephalosporins, you know, it all comes down to these generations, you know, and it's kind of confusing sometimes because you got to memorize a lot. But I think most of us agree that when we talk about cephalosporins, the earlier generations give you more gram positive. And as you go up in the generations, you get a little more gram, well, a lot more gram negative. <laughs> so, you know, we have our first generation cephalosporins, things like Keflex, things like uh, Ancef. And then we went to our second generations. One of them that jumps to mind is Cephotitan. Why? Because it had a little, you know, uh, anaerobic coverage. And then we went to our third generations, and that's when we got our first anti-pseudomonal cephalosporin, which I mentioned already was what? Ceftazidine. Of course, we have ceftriaxone, our workhorse for community-acquired pneumonias. Then we went over to the fourth generations, and I'm sure many people listening today have their workhorse in their ICU, which is what? Cefepine. That definitely covers what? 
pseudomonas. Now we have two anti-pseudomonal uh, cephalosporins. But the story doesn't stop there. There's actually fifth generation cephalosporins. And the two of them that jump out at me, one is called ceftaroline, which really kind of is more niche to MRSA. But the other one is ceftolazine. And not only does ceftolazine cover pseudomonas, it got combined with tazobactam. And now we have the brand name Cervaxa. And it's a really, really good drug when we talk about, you know, um, addressing pseudomonas. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.